This is Eye on Education on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Helen Farmer with you. It is Eye on Education, catching up with educators, a nutritionist and even a student on today's show as we mark Children's Mental Health Week. What are some of the biggest threats to our children's mental health? What's happening in schools? What can and should be implemented on a policy-wide basis. Plus, as we look and learn more about the impact on diet on our children's mental health, what are some things we can be incorporating and some tips and tricks from a nutritionist, a health-supportive chef, when it comes to what to feed our little ones. This is Eye on Education on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Throughout the course of the afternoon, we're going to be marking Children's Mental Health Week and in an hour's time finding out what's happening in schools to support that and conversations changing as well. We'd love to get your take on this, guys. Do your children have a greater awareness of mental health than perhaps you did growing up? And what would you love to see schools doing more or less of to support their mental health? Let us know on 4001. We're also bringing in the physical side as well. You know, we're learning so, so much about that mind-gut connection and about how having a healthy body can inform a healthy mind and vice versa. So joining us on the show between now and half past, we've got Natalie Caraba. She is an author, an educator, a clinical nutritionist and a health supportive chef. Natalie, how are you? Hi, I'm here. Um, Natalie, tell us a little bit about where your passion for health and specifically children's health when it comes to food came from. What's the origin story there? Um... The origin story is the food story. So I found um, I found my food story and my relationship with food to inform the path that I'm on. And I found that working with kids at whatever age, primary or secondary, is really key because it's at these ages that they're developing their sense of self and their identity and their sense of belonging. And part of that story is their food story. And they carry that with them for the rest of their life. And that informs their health. Can I ask you what a health supportive chef is? I've never heard that job title before and it, it makes sense, but I'm wondering what that looks like in practice. So I went to culinary school in New York at the Natural Gourmet Institute and we learned to use medicine, uh, sorry, food as medicine. So it is turning all of your favorite delicious dishes into dishes that will support your health so that they are full of nutrients and full of flavor. Um, so that's, that's really what it is. It's using food to its fullest potential. I wish I could turn back the clock and do things a bit differently with my kids um, and their food because one in particular is very picky, um, very, very picky. So I wondered if you could perhaps speak to promoting healthy eating habits in life can, can yeah, set the foundation for better health and maybe even you know, patterns with making good food choices. How crucial are those early years? They are very crucial, but it's also never too late. So you don't really have to turn back the clock. You can start right where you are. And the key really is food education, because there's so much misinformation out there about what is healthy and what isn't. And the term healthy itself needs rebranding, in in my opinion. Um, But those early years are when you're going to start forming that story for kids, where food becomes fun and healthy food, the greens and the vegetables and the fruit and everything else becomes a fun part of their life, not the chore. It's such an emotional topic though. You know, I had dinner with some friends last night and their little boy is probably even pickier than mine, loves the beige, loves the beige. Mm -hmm. And we got on the topic of just how upsetting it can be as a parent to be spending money, to be spending time only for that food to be rejected, for the, you know, 
sitting around the table and most people crying because it's got so stressful. Um, when people are coming to you as a nutritionist, what are some of the challenges you're hearing and how do you help people ultimately start to start to reconcile their own, fe own feelings around food and, and help make the make those good choices for their kids as well? Yeah, this food struggle is super common and we have, all of us have, all parents, nutritionists, doctors, everyone, we all have them. Um, the key, I think, that I have found to be the most useful with clients and with my students is really working with them and involving them in the process. So having them choose which foods maybe they might like to try and getting in the kitchen together or food shopping together or just involving them completely in the process so they have some agency for themselves because kids don't want to be told what to do as much as you and I don't want to be told what to do. Um, they, and food is a where they can demand and say, no, I will not eat. And if we get into the struggle, we're going to lose. That's just going to happen. So it's finding those different avenues around them. What, what interests them? What colors do they love? And finding ways in with them. Um, I've had a message for you from Jazz saying, um, how does the chef feel about hiding veggies in food or should children know what they're eating? That's such, an, that's such a good point. Well, how do you feel about that? Because um, this was something we relied on because my children would look at a pea and throw it on the floor. So we started blending things into sauces, but it actually doesn't really help with that conversation so much about them knowing what they're eating and why. So how do you, how do you feel? Where, where do you fall on, on that side of the fence? So there's no blanket statement. Yeah, it's meeting your kids where they are. And sometimes the nutrition bit has to come in. And so, yes, I have blended things for my kids without them knowing when they were tiny, tiny. And, you know, they didn't really need to know. It was fine. Um, I am a proponent of kids having that agency and knowing what's in it and making the decision so they can associate flavor with the foods and know that they're making the decisions. However, you know, for example, mac and cheese, it's a kid food and it's a very popular one. I will stick veggies in there and my daughters know about it. And so they know when they get their, their mac and cheese, there's going to be cauliflower, which might be a little bit hidden because it camouflages with the cheese, but the kale doesn't or the, or the broccoli doesn't. And so they know they're getting something with something they love. And that kind of makes hiding it not necessary, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes sense. Any questions you've got for Natalie, get in touch on 4001. She's an author, an educator, health supportive chef and a clinical nutritionist next. If you are having any juggles or struggles on the food front, um, we're going to be talking next about the myth of kid food. Um, and as we are talking education, what would she love schools to be doing, doing more or less of when it comes to nutrition education for our kids? This is Eye on Education on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. We're going to be speaking to the educators in half an hour's time about what's happening in schools around children's mental health. But talking on the food front now with chef, clinical nutritionist, educator and author, Natalie Caraba. I wanted to ask you, Natalie, about that mind-gut connection when it comes to kids. We hear about it all the time now in adults about, you know, the importance of our microbiome, about having, you know, fermented food, about the impact that, you know, eating at the wrong time can have on our sleep, which then informs our mental health as well. What about in our kids? What have you seen in yours and I guess in clients that are coming in to see you as well? Um, it's the same, right? It, they are absolutely affected in the same way. And uh, having adequate uh, fiber and fermented foods, like you mentioned, um, all of these things will play a role on the health of their microbiome, which informs their immune system, their nervous system. So it just, it's, it all works together. It's all connected, but it will affect kids as much as it does us. 
Are there any um, kids in particular? Um, and I'm asking this as we were talking about ADHD on the show last week and, and diet came up as actually a really important kind of lifestyle management technique. And is there any foods that you would really advise um, children to stay away from or to be incorporating to support their, their mental health and even issues such as ADHD? Um, yeah, absolutely. So again, real food, this is the whole foods that you see that look like they came off the tree or when they came out of the ground are going to be the best foods for any of the mental health uh, issues, particularly ADHD and ADD, and certainly staying away from anything with fructose in it, particularly. So sugars in general, but fructose and high, high fructose corn syrup in these are particularly egregious. Patrice asking on 4001, why do most parents feed their kids with non-nutritious food, chicken nuggets and the like? We always fed our kids the same as us. Can we talk about the myth of kids' foods and, and why so many of us end up going down that route? Um, they've got a fantastic marketing campaign, <laughs> but it really is. <laughs> I mean, it really is a gimmick. When you travel around the world, you see kids eating their traditional foods all the time. Um, I grew up on traditional foods until my parents got divorced and then there was a little bit more of the convenience and having to do this and we're fine, right? And we all say we're fine. Um, unfortunately, that's not really the case. And there's something called the long latency deficiency syndrome. And this is what happens when we have inadequacy in our nutrition intake over the course of time. So seems like we're okay, but then all of a sudden we get to a certain age and this illness pops up or that one pops up. And we think it's because we're just older, but that's not quite the case. Um, so the the myth of kid food and convenience being what trumps all is is actually quite costly. And they didn't they didn't include that in the fine print. Can I ask you about snacks? I think this is a real pain point for a lot of parents about those quick grabs and what, what I mean. Anyone who's dealt with a hangry child will know being able to quickly get them something to make everything right again. What are some of your favorite go-to snacks that pack a nutritious punch, but you know, kids might enjoy eating, whether it's you know, the inter interactivity of it or the aesthetics of it? So I really love to do trail mixes where I let my kids kind of decide what to do and they almost always add chocolate chips or some, some, some form of dark chocolate in there, uh, which I think is completely fine. So trail mixes, uh, we make granola bars, but there's also a few on the market. The fewer ingredients that they have, the better. You want mm -hmm. to have something that did not take a whole lot of ingredients or processing to happen to, to feed your kids. Um, so there are options out there. It just takes a little bit of reading and knowing or planning ahead. Last question. We are going to be speaking to schools after four o'clock about mental health, but I wanted to ask you about the food piece when it comes to UAE schools. What would you love schools to be doing more or less of, Natalie, to support educa education around food or just some good eating behaviours? Um, yeah, this is a great question. So when, when I think about schools, I think about the whole community that encompasses a school, the educators, the administrators, parents, coaches, everybody. And I think that encouraging schools to create environments that make healthy foods both appealing and accessible is really important, particularly at sporting events. I find mm -hmm. that at a lot of sporting events, you know, the kids have been working and playing and, you know, they're working hard. And so it's okay for them to have donuts and Gatorade and all these sugary things. Um, and it really isn't what is going to replenish them or to nourish them again. So I think just in encouraging that environment um, about what is healthy and then making it appealing. 
Thank you so much. As I said, you are an author. You've got some fantastic books that are aimed at kids, but really for the family to enjoy. And of course, you have your service as a nutritionist and a health supportive chef. What's the best way of getting in touch, finding the books? And ultimately, if, I'm sure you have an, a, a, a serious role as a counsellor for parents as well, helping them um, through this journey of Food Natalie. How can we get in touch with you? Um, yeah, nataliecaraba.com is my website. I'm also on Instagram and less and less on Facebook for some reason, but uh, definitely on Instagram and at my website, drop me an email or yeah, there's ways to get in touch. That'd be great. Absolute pleasure to catch up again. Thank you so much. This is Eye on Education on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. We are catching up now with 14-year-old Hannah and talking about her passion for STEM, getting more young women into science. She's a student at Horizon International. Hannah, how are you? Hi, yes, I'm great. Thank you so much for having having me. My name is Hannah Farg and I'm academic scholar at Horizon International School and I'm just so honoured to be on this show. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. I really, really am. Tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey into the world of STEM. And I understand you've got a passion for public speaking as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So let me just start with STEM, actually, because I found that public speaking arose from STEM because I was just so passionate about STEM that I really couldn't just keep it to myself. And I found that public speaking was such a great outlet for that. So in terms of STEM, I normally focus on the explorative aspects of STEM because I found that the classroom environment has pushed me so much and made me so curious about what we're doing that I kind of wanted to take it a step further. And I found that mm-hmm. I was doing that through the exploration side of it and looking at things like paradoxes and so on, which then led me to start my YouTube channel called STEMcast. You can find it on YouTube. And in you terms have of a public- YouTube channel about, okay, no, Hannah, this is, no, I need to interrupt you. This is important information. Do you know what dross my children watch on YouTube? This is gonna be fantastic to give them something good to watch. Say the name of the channel again for me, please. STEMcast. I am bookmarking this and giving it to my daughters. So how is that going? You know, you're gaining attention on there. What kind of content are you creating and what impact do you hope it will have on your audience? Yeah, so it's going great. I started it about last year, this time last year, maybe a bit earlier. And it honestly feels like time flies because it does not feel like it's been a whole year since I've done that. And it's just pretty much content it's me and a different guest each week which is great for both me and the other person because similar to teaching it's like you get better at it by talking about it with someone else so uh, yeah it's been going really well I'm doing it every two weeks now because I'm in the middle of GCSEs as well so that's going really well so Hannah as you get to that kind of post 16 phase of your education not that we're wishing you know the exams away and um, what are your plans I guess your aspirations in the STEM field in particular Yeah, so I don't really have a specific plan on what I want to do because I just don't want to limit myself to something like that. I'm very flexible, but I definitely do want to pursue STEM and do something related to that, possibly getting a scholarship in a prestigious STEM university, starting startups or something related to that in university as well that I would like to pursue. What advice would you give to parents, and I guess parents of daughters in particular, um, wanting to get them more into STEM? What do you feel like some of the big misconceptions are about about women in science that you would like to dispel now, Hannah? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that there's always going to be an opportunity waiting for you. And I think that's applicable to almost everything in life that is a misconception where you have to make your own opportunities. And I'm honored to have to be at a school where there are so many things that are available. So we have an evolved session run by my mentor, Mr. Tate. 
and it's pretty much an enrichment and enhancement sessions and workshops that I can take part in. And I think at different schools, they will, may have something similar to that. But if not, you can create something yourself. You can make your own STEM cast to participate in. You can do your own thing. Like if there's if there's nothing that exists for you or for your specific passion, then just make something. Like you're going to find what fits for you in that way. Um, Hannah, you are obviously such a young inspiration, you know, obviously with the academic side, but also the fun you're having with science and the content creation. Is there anyone that you look up to? Who are your kind of, I guess, heroes, heroines, your own inspirations? Yeah, so actually, this is a really good question because I get asked it quite a lot and my answer is always the same. And I genuinely just can't pinpoint a specific person to to be my role model. But I find that the best way to answer this question is to say that my role model is myself in 10, 15 years. Because the person that I want to be, everyone's different. So I think the person that I want to be is some someone that doesn't exist currently. And I think by doing that, I'm able to be unique and to follow my own path because it's ever-changing and it can it can always be adapted and changed. That is the best answer I ever could have hoped for. I think that is just fantastic. Thank you, Hannah, so, so much. We've had another message going. Um, what is the name of the YouTube channel? It's STEMcast. 14-year-old Hannah from Horizon International um, creating that content, and I'm going to get my girls on it. So thank you so much for your time, Hannah. One to watch for sure. Um, so really excited to catch up with you. And I think uh, the perfect guest as we... You know, talk about International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So thank you for your time. You're an absolute legend. Um, Hannah speaking to us. This is Eye on Education on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. We are marking Children's Mental Health Week this hour and asking about the role of schools and how conversations have changed in schools, but also out of them. Starting with Lizzie Varley, the Education Advisor at Cognita ME. Lizzie, can I ask you a personal question? Was mental health talked about when you were at school? Was it was it a thing? You know what? No, I don't think it really was. I think we I think we had like PSHE lessons like once every two mm. weeks, and I think I remember in year nine once talking about it for half an hour. But no, it, it's uh, nothing like what it is like now. That's for sure. No, I, I don't think I even understood what the idea of what mental health was until maybe even like like university kind of age and I'm I'm really grateful to be honest that you know my kids are coming home from school talking about you know mindful coloring or you know what anxiety is and what it can look like um I'm going to ask your your colleague about this after after half past about what kind of behaviors we're seeing in schools especially post-pandemic because it feels like you know the impact of the pandemic is still being seen on our children and and their mental health. And if I'm going to take any positive out of that, it's that the conversation has been opened up and we're, I guess, a bit more kind of plugged in. But I wanted to ask you, you know, kind of group-wide, what are some of the main mental health challenges that are being identified in schools right now? And, and does it differ to the age groups, Lizzie? Um, yeah, I suppose, I think a, bit, a big um, part of this is COVID, as, as you've mentioned. And I think especially kind of early years primary, and um, we've seen probably a heightened um, issue with anxiety and attachment related um, challenges with children, um, which I think obviously makes sense due to due to the pandemic. Um, and then I think further up as you get older, um, in terms of mental health challenges, it would be things around like low self-esteem and anxiety and depression, especially um, as you go into the teenage years. And probably multiple different uh, reasons for that. I think the digital world, um, the amount of time people now have, or children, students now have online, 
um, and that mm. access to the internet, social media, online bullying, and and also kind of the the usual, I suppose, which was around in you know when we were younger, the exam pressure, uh, and all those all those things that I think um, contribute to those mental health challenges. Um, I don't think it's unique to where we are. I think this is global. We're seeing it globally and across our cognitive group. Um, we, we see the similar trends. Um, and they seem to be the biggest issues at the moment. I think by acknowledging that, though, it means that, you know, schools can start to open up the conversation and get a bit preventative about some of those. I mean, exams there being a really good example, you know, talking about how we can support students in school, have conversations with parents as well. Um, you know, are there any kind of... I mean, you mentioned kind of screen time there as well. Are there any technologies, you know, any innovations that you've seen that are really doing their bit to support students' mental health? Yeah, I think there's there's lots out there nowadays. And I think as much as we talk about the digital world from a negative perspective, it actually does have like loads of positives as, as well. And things um, such as um, apps, there's lots of apps and tools that um, teachers can use, such as things like Komodo, um, Yoohoo, some of our schools use. Um, that allow children to kind of regularly check in with their well-being. So it's something that they, they can do that daily or weekly and then um, teachers can see kind of track trends uh, in emotions and how children are feeling. If they want to post something anonymous, they can do. Um, and it allows schools to kind of, yeah, analyse things on a big scale as well as like class-based. Um, so, so innovations like that have been um, super useful for schools. And looking at how we assess what well, I suppose it's looking at well-being assessment that's been something that's really been a focus we know very much how to assess kind of academic outcomes but actually now it's just as important if not more to be able to assess where children's well-being levels are, are at mm -hmm. that is more challenging however a lot of research has gone into that now and technology does allow us to do that. I think that's, that raises a really interesting point when you think about, you know, children are going to perform academically. They're going to be learning more effectively if they are feeling, you know, safe and happy and psychologically safe in a school as well. So even a school just showing that initiative. And as you said, measurability is a really, really tricky one. But interweaving into the curriculum, that's what I want to ask about now. It's not just, as you mentioned earlier, having a half hour chat every, you know, every few weeks and it, it being it being mentioned. It's this idea of it being woven throughout the day. Um, Lizzie Varley with us today from Cognita, um, education advisor there. This is Eye on Education on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Joining us is the Education Advisor at Cognita ME. Uh, Lizzie Varley's with us today. We're talking about children's mental health as it is the week of awareness. Um, and I wanted to ask you, and you know, sometimes these, these policies do take time because there are things that need to go through within school, obviously parent involvement and feedback as well. But from a policy perspective, Lizzie, you know, what changes would you recommend schools implement to better support pupils' mental health and their well-being? What would you love to see I think um, student voice um, is really key um, to children's mental health and I think for schools considering kind of all the different avenues that you might be able to gain student voice and ensure that children are heard. Um, so whether that is the use of these apps or having worry boxes, um, circle times in class, um, the um, kind of access to school counsellors, um, student wellbeing committees, um, uh, and ensuring that all of your staff are kind of approachable, um, they are non-judgmental and, and they're able to really listen to children. Mm -hmm. I think the key part um, for mental health is identifying someone that you might be concerned about and doing that at a really early stage because the earlier you intervene, the more successful the outcome. 
Um, and I think um, with children's mental health, it kind of all comes under the safeguarding umbrella, um, where obviously safeguarding is about promoting the welfare of children. And I think that student voice is, is really key to kind of successful mental health strategies, really, is knowing how children feel. I, I would obviously never ask you for, for specific names of students or families, but you know, do any examples come to mind where there has been that early intervention, Lizzie, and there has been this idea of you know, helping a child turn around their academic performance and obviously their happiness levels because of um, an awareness around their mental health problems? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I can say there's multiple, really. I think um, one like really nice example that I've seen that's really simple, I think, for schools to use is kind of questionnaires for parents before children start school. Um, in one of the schools that I worked at, um, my previous school, before the children came back after the pandemic, um, where there was like a, just a simple questionnaire that went out to parents about how their children were emotionally and their well-being. Um, and just to have that information before children come back in so a teacher can reach out speak to a parent and say, well, actually, what is going to make this easier for them? They're struggling at home. Would it be a favourite book that we could read at the beginning of the day? Do they want to actually sit at the front of the classroom? Do they actually not want you to kind of choose them to, you know, to, you know, have answers? What, what, what are they struggling with? Mm. And is that kind of like opening up that conversation? So starting to support children before they even arrive at school and having that awareness of, you know, what, what challenges they might have and being able to put the support in like from, from the, the day one, the moment they step into school. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it's just simple things like that. And there's so many different things um, schools can do. Uh, and I think what's great at the moment um, within Dubai, the KHJ have put a huge um, focus on well-being. It's part of huge focus in inspections at the moment. So schools really are having really in-depth conversations about promoting well-being and being really proactive, I suppose, to try and mitigate against, you know, their mental health issues that might arise. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they do, but it's, it's a really strong conversation at the moment, which is only a good thing. Good. I think there's a real temptation as a parent to be thinking about home life and school life and you, you actually spoke really beautifully there about this idea of communication and integration and understanding that parents and teachers are really on the same team when it comes to those children you know if there are things going on at home you know how is this communicated I spoke to a friend recently and when she was going through a divorce she had teenage daughters and I'm obviously not going to mention the schools but she said one of the schools handled it so beautifully you know so supportive what do you need as a family how can we support her in and out of school and the other one didn't really care and um, she said it was just so stark to be seeing how how differently these schools cared about those kids. And it actually comes to a message we've ha- had um, saying, this is from Pat on 4001, saying, are mental health challenges communicated to fellow pupils um, if one kid is suffering so that the other children can support or be aware, e.g. if a child loses a parent or there is a divorce? That's an interesting point because this idea of kind of, yeah. as she says, kind of, you know, community and, and, and coming together, but there's obviously privacy issues as well. Um, how is that handled? Uh, yeah, so it's a good question. And it, it literally, it comes down to individuals and what is right for that child. And if anything does happen like that, whatever bereavement that might be, that is a conversation that the school would sit down with that parent um, and that family and understand what do they want? What is the child comfortable with? For some children, they want everyone to know. For some children, they really don't. So it's about really understanding, again, it goes back to that communication and working together as a community to support when something awful happens. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what makes, you know, schools here amazing in some ways. We're more than just schools. We are a whole community and we offer all that kind of support services because it is very different in the UAE. It's not like home. It it isn't the same. We don't all have our families around us. So it's really important that schools, I suppose, step up and take on that role to kind of, you know, support and help wherever we can. So I think 
that is, is a difficult one to answer and it would be no, just totally dependent on that child and that's that's how it should be that, you know it should be as, yeah. as you say about what's best for that child what's best for that family depending on the environment even the teacher handling it and you know so so many variables but even that having the conversation i think is, is really crucial loads of people are getting in touch talking about threats to children's mental health right now and you know, Ruth is talking about family conflict and divorce, um, which I think is is absolutely, you know, again, highly individual. And in some, in some families, divorce can be a really positive thing. Um, but I wanted to come to this message because um, it comes to the academics. Message saying um, the academic pressure from schools and parents, especially in Dubai, is the most damaging. How can you find a school that's more about the pastoral care and the social side? My kids are five and eight. They're bright, but I'm not pushing them hardcore academically. But it seems to get really, really hardcore at secondary. What are some of the questions that you should be asking a school or, or educators, Lizzie, to make sure you are finding a good match for what your values are as, as a family? Um, you know, I mean, we've got a huge choice of schools here, obviously, in the UAE, and there is hopefully something for everybody. But if you are looking for that pastoral care and maybe not the, to borrow no names word, hardcore academics, um, what would your suggestions be in terms of finding a good match? I think the best thing to do always is to go and visit a school. I think you get such a sense of like a feeling of the culture and the ethos and the vibe of the school when you're there. And um, it, it, I think that massively makes a difference. And in terms of questions, I suppose it's around what, what is the vision? Or who are you as a school? You just want to know, you know, what is their purpose? What is, you know, what is their mission statement? Is it about children thriving? And is it about well-being? Or is it about, you know, are they more academically focused? So I think just kind of those open general questions about, what is your, you know, what, yeah, what, sorry, someone's phoning me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. It's the, um, it's, so, it's the vibe yeah. check. That's what we want to get to. It's, it, is. It, is, it really yeah. is. Yeah, that, that sense of connection. But great question there. Thank you so much. Lizzie Varley, um, always a pleasure to catch up. Um, thank you so much for your insights across the group of Cognito. This is Eye on Education on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. We are marking Children's Mental Health Week. Um, Amy Carroll with us today, the Vice Principal at Ranchers Primary School. And I think we touched on it earlier with Lizzie Varley about the rise in mental health problems, but also the rise in conversations following the pandemic. Um, Amy, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, this is out of the UK, not the UAE, but talking about the intake of COVID kids, you know, it's being reported internationally with you know, disruptive behaviour worsening, um, more than two out of five, so 42% of teachers took part in an Ofsted survey on, on pupil behaviour, said it's worsened since the pandemic, um, talking about um, school refusal, um, passive non-compliance, where that's children ignoring an authority figure, talking back to staff, and even really, you know, things like obviously separation anxiety we're seeing in little ones who've never been in a, in a nursery or a school environment. So I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation, Amy, but I wondered um, if you're seeing anything like that around, you know, can you draw any lines between the pandemic and children's behaviour and even their mental health? What are you seeing? Yeah, Helen, it, it's really interesting because I think for so many of us, you know, we've moved on since the pandemic, but but in school settings, we have seen the impact it's having on children. Um, so, for example, like you touched on there, you know, attachment, you know, children have been at home with their parents and carers for so long that 
particularly in the early years, we are seeing children who are finding it difficult to come into school and, and saying goodbye to mom and dad. Um, further up the school, and I know some secondary schools, we are seeing teenagers who, you know, are really worried about going into school. And in general, we're seeing a rise in children who just have this anxiety about life, you know. So I would say definitely we are seeing an increase. Um, however, with this being said, the conversation is now being had. Um, like you'd mentioned, Helen, you know, anxiety or mental health wasn't wasn't really talked about when I went to school. So I think now it's we're in a really good place that we're talking about it more. So therefore, we're seeing an increase as well. We we are, and I'm, I think there's, it's it, we're never going to be able to work out. You know, are we seeing more? You know, diagnosis of anxiety and depression in teens because there is a real rise or is it because there's a you know greater awareness they are getting the help that they need and this is where I worry about sounding like a, basically a proper boomer but are we in in danger of over diagnosing over medicalizing talking about it too much you know you know when when a nine-year-old saying I've got anxiety and you're like you haven't you're just a bit worried about you know Arabic this morning <laughs> you know <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a bit of a fine a bit of a fine line sometimes but this these rise in awareness weaving into the conversation into the curriculum I think is is really really positive so I wanted to ask you about what's happening at Ranchers Primary there you know how do you foster this culture that does support the children's mental health and their well-being and not just in, in pupils but I guess staff as well Amy yeah, definitely. And I, and I think even adding to that, Helen, it's parents as well. You know, mm. it's, it's educating parents on, on how to have these conversations. So um, for us, really, it's, it's a community approach. You know, we know that if our staff are in a good place and our children will be in a good place, but then we also want to make sure parents feel supported. And kind of, I suppose, the way we look at mental health, it's about how we feel and how we think. And the great thing is, look, emotional literacy, it's a skill that we can develop together. Um, so, for example, last week... Um, we had Kieran McBreen. I know he's been on your show previously, but he came in um, to work with our parents and we looked at kind of children's mental health, the research he's done, what are kids worried about, but also then what are parents worried about. And we had a really good session. And this is something we do every week in our school where we have a talk, be it uh, someone from Lighthouse Arabia, they're absolutely brilliant, um, maybe a parent on board as well. Um, he's a real expert in the field, but I think for parents, it's, it's really about coming together and knowing that you're not alone you know mm-hmm. um, last week with Kieran, he really facilitated some some really powerful conversations yes the parents are vulnerable you know I was one of those vulnerable parents but um, it was really good to know that you're not alone in, in maybe the worries that you have as a parent it's hugely comforting isn't it to, to think that because we're all so private about it and there is still so much stigma about it it's not about standing up and saying I'm you know worried my child has depression although I'm sure some people mm. would but it's about you know really being tuned into it and, and that extends the teachers as well I, mean, I wanted to ask you about that you know how do you train teachers and staff to recognize signs of mental health issues in pupils and I, I guess the process would you mind kind of unpacking the nuts and bolts and Again, yeah. I would never ask for a specific example, but if you could kind of illustrate with maybe something that has happened in school, that would be really useful. Yeah, definitely. So um, it starts really, so um, when we start the school year, we have a year of kind of training. And I think if I look back on previous years, you know, there was a focus on the academics, how we mark our books. But there's been a huge shift, really, with the Wellbeing Matters framework coming in with the KHJ and also as part of the Cognitive Group. Um, holistic education is what we're all about. So part of our staff training then, um, we look at, under safeguarding is the NSPCC have done some brilliant resources for schools 
all about how to be a good listener. And we know that if children are in a safe place, they'll talk. And with the NSPCC training that we do, um, staff are given what can be some really simple tips, but really powerful ones about our body language when we're talking with a child, not being distracted, you know, giving them that extra 10 seconds and they might open up a bit more. So mm. all staff, be it um, if they're working in the front of house, if they're, you know, supporting in a classroom, go through that training and how to be a good listener. Um, and then we've got mental health first aiders, you know, and this is a, a pretty new concept recently, but it's absolutely brilliant that we've key staff members who are specialised in identifying when children need support. Um, but for us, really, as a school, it's kind of like you've said, Ellen, it's knowing the children really well. And if there is a change in, in behaviour, that we recognise that change. And it's a real community approach. So it might be that the school secretary has seen something, then the security guard or me walking around um, out in the playground, that collectively, it's always on our minds that we're looking out for these children. And what we're seeing a real rise in as well is children kind of can be a bit reluctant to share how they're feeling. So we've had to be really creative in our approach. So for example, our year five and six children have said they don't want to put, you know, their worry in a box, you know, they don't want to be seen to do that. So we now have a QR code where they can do it and they feel more comfortable. So really it's about the teacher and um, you know, setting up that environment that supports mm. the needs of their children. But yeah, going back to the NSPCC and definitely the, the mental health first aid training, Helen would be two um, kind of key professional development areas that we do with our staff. Well, thank you so much. I think it's wonderful for parents to be thinking about this and petitioning their school if they don't feel like enough is being done. Um, so thank you so, so much for your time. Um, and I guess my last question is, as a as with you putting your parent hat on, I guess, um, you know, really just to know that parents aren't alone in this. And it is, a, it is a collaboration and whether there is something going on at home, if there's been, you know, discussions around bullying or family situations changing, schools could and should be receptive to that information from parents, right, Amy? Oh, absolutely. It's so powerful. And that's why um, if we look at our system in the morning, part of our culture is we want the parents in the school. So particularly in the early years, um, all the parents drop to the door of the classroom so they can have that conversation. And no matter how minute or trivial it might seem, you know, mm. granny going back to Ireland, for example, would have a huge impact on my little Rian, you know, and, mm. and his well-being and how he feels. Um, so definitely talking with the school. And if it isn't the class teacher, it's finding a staff member that you're just really comfortable sitting down and talking. You know, so much of my time is, you know, making a cup of tea for a parent and just having a chat um, you know, often there might be something they haven't shared with anyone and they, they think, you know, school is just about the child, but the parents are such an integral part so of that. True. So I would advise anyone, first of all, don't don't suffer in silence. There'll be someone there to help. And, and if not, there'll be someone that can point you in the right direction. So most definitely um, keeping schools up to date um, is really, really helpful. Well, thank you so much. I'd love a cuppa sometime. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us on the phone. Amy Carroll, Vice Principal at Ranch. Primary School. That was Eye on Education. I'm Helen Farmer and you can catch us live on Dubai Eye 103.8 every single Thursday afternoon.